be continuing today in the book of First Thessalonians. So if you would open there to chapter 2 for me, I would appreciate it. Our morning Old Testament reading was Ezekiel 34. I try to match those with the text and the topic of the sermon. Sometimes it's a bit difficult. Um, today, there's a whole chapter devoted to the topic. And so reading Ezekiel 34 was actually a very good thing in getting us in the right state of mind for what Paul is dealing with in his problems. Paul was apparently under attack. His person, his ministry, and even the very gospel he preached, which is the only true biblical gospel, there is no other. And they're under attack here again in Thessalonica. And so he's writing to defend himself. Satan and his people are always ready to rage and rampage against God, against his children, against his truth, that is the Bible. And so dealing with them is one of the common motivations we see in the New Testament epistles for their writing. He writes to undo the damage they do or to rebuke those who are leading people astray as well as to inform them of new things. Dealing with them, because it's in Scripture and it's under the inspiration of Scripture, (coughs) we should remember to give careful heed then to what he's teaching. So before we go ahead and look at that, though, let us read the text. We'll be looking at the first eight verses this morning, but I'll go ahead and read... uh, Read the chapter to get us familiar with it, or most of the chapter. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been appointed by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. For we never came to you with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, as God is our witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, (coughs) though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like nursing mother taking care of her own children. (coughs) So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, of how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know this, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, 
who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it is, what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today to look at this first section of chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, we pray, Lord, your grace would be with us that we would understand these things and be able to learn from them and apply them in our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul is defending his ministry and his gospel and his own person from the attacks of the enemies of the gospel. And he starts it off by calling them as his first witness. Notice, you yourselves, brothers, know. He's calling them to say that our first visit to you was not in vain. You saw what happened. You were there. You understand. He's calling them as a witness against those who are attacking him and his gospel and the church. We looked at it last week, particularly in verses 5 through 10, where Paul says the gospel came to them with power and with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, meaning many people were saved and perhaps even miraculous occurrences, gifts after their salvation were shown, but just the conversion of their heart was seen through the power of the gospel in Paul's preaching and Paul and company's preaching. And they had received the gospel with joy in spite of much affliction, according to verse 6 of chapter 1. They turned from worthless idols to serve God, according to verse 9. They had thought so much of Paul and his team that they imitated him as he imitated Christ. And they, in turn, became examples to the believers throughout the whole region and really the, the world at that time, the way the gospel had gone. They were talking about Thessalonica. And that's a good testimony. It's a testimony for the truthfulness and the faithfulness of the ministry that Paul had among them on his first visit. I wanted to remind you of the parable of the sower. You remember that in Matthew 13? He told them a parable, verse 3 through 8. The sower went out to sow, and he sowed some seed. It fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, and it didn't have much soil, and sprang up immediately, but they had no depth of soil. So when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. But other seed fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundred, some sixty, some thirtyfold. 
Remember his interpretation? Starts down a little bit later in verse 18. Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and he does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, what has been sown in his heart. When Paul sowed the gospel among them, they were not like that kind of seed. They took it into their hearts. They received the gospel with joy and they grew up from it. And this is the soil, that was the soil, or the seed that was sown on the path. And what was sown on rocky seed is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, but he has no root and endures for only a little while. When tribulation or persecution arise because of the word, immediately he falls away. They were not like that. They received it amongst much conflict and with persecution and troubles. And yet they received it with joy and put it into practice in their lives. As for what was sown among thorns, this is one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choked the word, and it proves unfruitful. They were not unfruitful. They were so fruitful that the talk of the fruits of the Spirit in their lives were being discussed amongst the people all around the world, all around the world of their day, and all the churches, and they were rejoicing about it. They were like the seed sown on good soil. That's the one who hears the word and understands it and bears fruit and yield. In one case, a hundred, in one case, sixty, another thirtyfold. So his testimony, his first testimony of the credibility of his ministry, of his person, of their labor in the church, is the fruit that the, that the Thessalonians were having this evidence of his work. Their lives had been transformed. The world had seen it. They were producing that fruit. And they should understand then that Paul's ministry was for real. He next goes on to remind them about what he suffered just before he came to them. In, in Philippi, He's on his second missionary journey. He receives that famous vision of the man in Macedonia who says, come over to Macedonia and help us. And they take a boat and they sail over to Macedonia. They come to Neapolis, the port city. Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, they go on to Philippi. Now Luke gives a description of Philippi as a Roman colony in a leading city of that district of Macedonia. Now, we know in the book of Acts, that's Acts chapter 16, where that story is covered. We know in the book of Acts, sometimes Paul writes we, I mean, not Paul. Sometimes Luke writes we, 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 and sometimes he writes they. Uh, he was with them up until this point. He stayed on in Philippi. And some suppose that because he stayed on in Philippi, and that he seemed to have some pride in the city, that he might have been from there. We don't know for, for sure. But in Philippi, Paul followed his usual custom to speak to the Jews first. But there weren't many Jewish men there. They didn't have a synagogue. So they were meeting by the river as a place of prayer. And the women are mentioned in Acts 16, particularly Lydia. She was a prominent businesswoman converted through the ministry of Paul. Uh, note, in verse 14, it says, her heart was opened by the Lord. 
and she received the gospel. A very important note that we don't see very often, but it explains how one receives the gospel. Our heart is transformed, it is opened, and then we receive it. But there were other women there in Philippi. Some of them are mentioned in the book of Philippians. And it's been pointed out that Macedonian culture allowed women to have a higher place than most of the rest of the Roman Empire. And that's why the women are mentioned prominently, because they were businesswomen and they were leaders in the, the civil world. So anything, anyway, everything was going very well at first. There were many converts, they were hearing the gospel, they were excited. But there was a demon-possessed girl who followed him around. And the demon-possessed girl was prophesying about him, and he really didn't want the demons being the ones testifying about his ministry. Neither did Jesus. So he drove the demon out, silenced her. Of course, that took away her fortune-telling powers, which made her pagan owners very angry. So they had Paul arrested and beaten with rods and thrown into jail. And their legs were put in the stocks. Have you ever seen those? You basically have a board you sit on, the stocks for your legs, and there's nothing behind you. And if you're sitting there for days, you know, you're going to try to sleep by leaning back, and it's really miserable. It's a torture device for punishing people. They actually used to use them in New England in the early days, too. We had them in our town square for festivals and events. You, you get the one like this, or you get the one with just the feet. I've done that. <laughs> we did that to my father. <laughs> but it wasn't fun for them. It was torture. And this time in prison is what Paul is talking about when he writes of, in verse 2, the shameful treatment they had in Philippi. Because of the word of God, because of the testimony of Jesus Christ, because of the power of God in driving out a demon, they found themselves imprisoned and beaten and tortured. Yeah, we know what happened, right? Their cheerful testimony under their trial convicted the Philippian jailer. And after a miraculous earthquake that unlocked all the doors and locks, he was saved. And as Lydia had done, he also took them had his family baptized and brought them into his home. Now this sign of baptizing, taking his whole family and having them baptized, shows continuity with the covenant sign of the Old Testament. When a family was converted, all the males would be circumcised under the authority of the father. And we see that probably is what's happening here, that under the authority of the father who has believed, he has his family made a covenant family. Anyway, he has given the sign to the Gentiles. He's given them to the Jewish proselytes. He's given them to the pagans. And all of them have seen, they have heard, they have understood, they have rejected, and they have opposed Paul and his ministry. So after he had been beaten and tortured, he was freed from jail. He makes them apologize, not because he was offended, but for the sake of the church. And it's protecting it. He made them understand that they'd committed a serious crime and they needed to not do that again. And that was within his power to do. And so he did. And then they went on to Thessalonica. 
And in Thessalonica, you'd think, well, maybe I should be more careful about what I say and do. Uh, That would be the worldly man. But no, he says they had great boldness in their speaking. Now, the word boldness there is that they spoke without any restraint or fear. The idea being that nothing that had happened to them, none of the threats that were made against them, none of the dangers that were before them had any impact on what they said. We have a message from God that we are going to give, and we are not afraid. We will speak. We will speak openly and boldly. Even though he'd been imprisoned and beaten in the previous city and tortured, even though he'd been flogged and attacked many other places, even though the Jews hated him, the Gentiles hated him, they were raging against the message of the cross. Paul, as he said in Romans, or Paul, as he said in the book of Acts when he was on trial, said, I did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God, Acts 20:27. 20, he spoke the whole counsel, even the things they didn't want to hear, even the things they didn't want to receive, even the things they wanted to reject, even the things that would get them to pick up stones and want to kill him. He spoke the whole counsel of God. And he says that because of that, he is innocent of the blood of all men. A reference back to the Old Testament, which required the watchmen of Israel to give the message of God. And if he did not do it faithfully, that he would be guilty of the blood of sinners who died for their sin. Now, a lesser man than Paul might have backed off or given up. Don't make waves. Don't endanger yourselves. Maybe they would speak in secret, or maybe they would soften the message, or maybe they would only say the things they knew they could get away with in the context of where they were. We know what happens. It's a very common attitude to take. But Paul was not like that. Paul had this boldness in his heart, and he was following Jesus. Remember what Jesus said. Talking about the good shepherd, he says, there's the hired hand who is not a shepherd. He does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and, and this is the key point, cares nothing for the sheep, John 10, 12, and 13. These false shepherds didn't care for the sheep, just as we read about in Ezekiel this morning, Ezekiel 34, they didn't care about the sheep. They fed only themselves. They weren't concerned with the sheep. The wolf comes, run away, leave them. Who's the wolf in our case? Well, the worldly people who hate the gospel, the Jews who hate the gospel, who want to stop the gospel and silence the gospel. If you care nothing for God's sheep, you run away and leave them. Paul cared. Paul was a true under-shepherd of the great shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, John 10, 11. Paul was willing over and over again to risk his life in preaching the true gospel to the people. He never shied back from it. He never said, well, this town, I might get in trouble. Oh, the Jews are opposing. I won't speak. 
he spoke. He let them drive him out, sometimes with whips. One time he was stoned and thrown in the garbage outside the city. They thought he was dead. Three times he was beaten with rods. He didn't care enough for his own safety to say, I'm going to set God aside and be safe. He did the work that God had given him. The risk the true, preaching the true gospel because that's the way the world treats him. He said, the Jews demand a sign and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach, preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That gospel message that he was preaching was the power of God. If he would not preach it in its truthfulness and its fullness, if he would not convict men of sin and call them to repentance and tell them the only way of salvation is through the blood of Christ, then he was denying what they needed most. He was not loving them. He was not caring for them. He was abandoning them to the wolves to be devoured. He did not worry about being stoned. He took no excuse to run away or abandon them. And he's reminding them here that he didn't. He was a true shepherd of the sheep. Paul had warned, warned Timothy that the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That's what Paul is saying he doesn't do. He doesn't preach what people want to hear. He doesn't preach what people are willing to hear. He doesn't preach what will make them happy. He preaches the truth of God. The power of the truth is that it can convert the soul and make them happy with the truth. You can also make them angry with the truth if they are not converted or will. But he says, men will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions turn away from listening to the truth and wander off in the myths. You know, many shepherds throughout the ages, even back in Ezekiel, they've turned aside from the truth, tickle ears with sweet words that men want to hear, say no words that will offend sinful man. You can do that and actually only preach the truth of Scripture, but just limit which truths. The ones that are acceptable where I'm preaching, I'll preach those. The ones that would call them to repentance and anger those who don't want to repent, skip those. There are plenty of men throughout the ages who have done that, and I think that's what Ezekiel is talking about. Men who start to feed only themselves, who don't feed the flock of God with the word of God, the truth of God. Because while it's nice to hear the things that make us happy, it's more necessary even to hear the things that convict our souls that we might turn from it. Because we aren't forgiven from sin unless we're repentant of it, and we can't repent of it if nobody tells us about it. And so that, I think, is Paul's great point here. If you don't offend them with the truth, then you've abandoned the gospel, you've abandoned the sheep. Paul says of that he is innocent. In the book of Galatians, he asks the question, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? If I'm trying to please man, if I were still trying to please man, 
I wouldn't be a servant of God. You cannot serve God and please man as a minister, as a teacher, as an elder. And you can't follow only the things you like and draw near to God. Because it's a total deal. All that God has said is important to him. If you only pick pieces that you'll follow and pieces that you won't, then you won't have a place with God. So Paul never gave up. Paul continued to preach the gospel to to them, and he came to them in Thessalonica and preached the gospel in spite of being brutally beaten and tortured. He continues his defense in verses 3 through 5 by reminding them that his ministry was pure and it was God-centered. That it didn't spring up from error. Now it seems the local opponents of the gospel might have been saying something along the lines of, Paul isn't different than any other wandering philosopher of our age, and his philosophy is bad. His philosophy is things we're not supposed to believe because we're Roman citizens and we shouldn't listen to them. Paul was saying that's not the way it is. They were perhaps saying that he was working hard to gain followers for himself because that's what the Greek and Roman philosophers did. You built up a following and when you had enough followers, you became somebody. When you didn't have enough followers, you were just some wandering person blabbering about things you didn't understand. But once you had followers, then what you said was real. Paul didn't like being thought of in that way. He didn't do that. That wasn't his purpose. That wasn't his plan. That wasn't his desire. You remember what he said to the Corinthians? He said, well, they were following, they were dividing themselves up into sects and following men, just like the Greeks and Romans did. Oh, I follow you know, Aristotle. Oh, I follow Plato. Oh, I follow this guy who's newer, that guy who's newer. And he said, what I mean is, each one of you says, I follow Paul. Oops. Or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. He said, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? He goes on, that's uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 12-13. In chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, oh, in, uh, yeah, in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, he says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants to whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. He's saying we're servants, we're not the leaders, we're not the guru, we're not the you know, the high-end person you should be following and listening to. We are simply servants. He said, chapter 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He was not trying to lead people to become his followers. He wanted them to follow Christ. He says, their ministry was pure. Their appeal, he uses that word, The appeal there, meaning his gospel call, did not come from error. Now, there are a lot of words that can be translated error. The one here means a wandering away from the truth, a wandering of doctrine or a wandering of morals is how it's normally used. And that's what its meaning is here. 
By the time Paul was facing martyrdom, he wrote Timothy and really to all pastors and teachers and said, do your best to present yourselves as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The doctrine needed to be pure, not an error, not a wandering around of my ideas, but a biblical doctrine, a sound doctrine. And that teaching included not just the, the facts, but also the life, the, the deeds, the morals that he should have. He said it didn't come from impurity. It wasn't an error, an error wandering away from the truth that follows the scripture. And we should, ministers and elders and teachers, should be careful to show themselves approved, rightly handling the word of truth. But it also didn't come from impurity. And that really makes me think back to the letter of Jude that we went over last fall. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He goes on to, in the book to cite the unbelief of the Jews during the Exodus, the fallen angels who left their place in heaven looking for something better, apparently, the sexual immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, yet in a like manner, these people also, the false teachers and false prophets, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme. The Holy Ones, verse 8 of Jude. Jude is saying that their false teachings and their false prophecies come from their own corrupted hearts, from their own godlessness. And Paul is saying, mine comes from a pure motive. He desired their souls to be right with God. And he also says that his appeal did not come from an attempt to deceive Paul says again to Timothy, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceiving spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars. The teachers are lying. They're deliberately doing this. Whose consciences have been seared, who forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe in the truth. Truly, there are those out there, and Paul knows it, who are trying to deceive you. Remember, we talked about that in 1 John 2.26. There are false teachers who are trying to deceive you. Paul is not. He's stuck exclusively with the truth of the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and then the Greek, Romans 1.16. <clears throat> Since the gospel itself was the source of the power to change men's souls, not Paul's wisdom, not Paul's skills, not Paul's techniques, not stroking their egos and giving them good words that they would like, but the truth of the gospel, he never attempted to deceive them. You can trick people into joining the church. You can trick people into becoming Christians. You can persuade them and bully them. But Paul didn't do that. Paul sincerely told them the truth and looked for the power of God to convert their souls. And he goes on in verse 4 to say, the reason for this, 
And that is that they were entrusted by God with the gospel. Paul says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. Note that stewards, not the owners of the mysteries, not the creators of the mysteries, not the decipherers of the mysteries, but as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful, 1 Corinthians 4.1. Paul is insisting they were faithful with the ministry. They handled it properly, the gospel. And it was the power of the gospel that was used to change men's souls and bring them into the church, not the wisdom of Paul. He says, we are not like so many peddlers of the word of God. What does a peddler of the word of God do? Well, he sells it. And if you don't want to buy it, like he's selling snake oil, he'll change this, he'll change that. He'll find a way that makes the gospel acceptable to you so that you can come to church and join the church. I remember hearing of many churches in the 50s and 60s, very conservative churches, founded by people who hated communism, didn't actually get into the gospel too much. And the churches eventually either failed completely or were replaced by, if the pastor was preaching the gospel and the truth, replaced by people who believe the truth. You can get them in by hook or by crook, but that doesn't make them believers. That makes you a peddler of the word of God. But he says, we as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. He was not selling the gospel for power or for profit, but he was presenting the great truth that he'd been entrusted with by God, knowing that God was keeping an eye on him. He says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. It was a sacred trust that God had given them to reconcile men to himself through the gospel of truth. And without that gospel... There really is no reconciliation. And if Paul were to say, well, the gospel offends, I need to find a better way, he would no longer be a servant of Christ. He would no longer be an ambassador of Christ. He would be self-serving. He would be making followers for himself, making a sect of his own with people who listen to him rather than listen to Scripture. And so, because of this, they spoke the gospel, not to please men, but for the glory of God. You see this in verse 4 and 5. You see it really throughout his whole life. Paul, in all of his labors, his words, his teaching, his living, his actions, they all centered around pleasing God, who he knew as the judge. Remember, we read this before, he asked, Am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Galatians 1.10. Men hated the gospel. And he's asking that question in the book of Galatians. I think in the New Testament, there's probably no book more hated than the book of Galatians. Men hate it to this day, the message. There's one gospel and one gospel only. And if you're preaching a different gospel, you know, 
may you be eternally condemned. If you're following a different gospel, you don't know God. You need the true gospel. Men hate that message. The Jews hate it because their message was, well, the gospel isn't enough. You need, Moses. You need the ceremonial law of Moses. The Gentiles hate it. We've got to believe in somebody being raised from the dead. We've got to believe that he paid for our sins, not us. No, I'm good enough. And men rage against it and against that book. But in that book, he says, am I seeking the approval of men or of God? Clearly, he was not seeking the approval of men, because if he was, the book of Galatians would not be the most hated book, probably in the New Testament. He was seeking God's approval. He knew the words of Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind and give to everyone according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. He was not concerned with whether the Jews loved his message or whether the Gentiles loved his message, whether the, you know, the, the silversmith who makes idols loves his message, whether the guy who has a slave who prophesies with a demon loves his message. He was concerned with the glory of God, and concerned with the judgment of God in his life. Paul says that he spoke honestly and openly. He says the same thing to the Corinthians in a different way. He said, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. The Greco-Roman philosophers of his day, who is probably being compared to by the some in Thessalonica, you had the, the most lofty and intellectual speech and wisdom and tried to prove themselves so superior that it was important to follow them and listen to them to learn from them. Paul says, I did not do that. For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. Note he decided. Paul was trained. He could do it. He could use rhetoric. He could use fine-sounding arguments. He could bamboozle them and get them to come to his side through his power and through his wisdom and through his argumentation. But he refused because it would distract from the gospel. In fact, it would detract from the gospel. He said, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. We see the Spirit work in the power of preaching through the conversion of sinners, through the transformation of their lives. We see that to this very day. When they, when they repent and are living a new life in Christ, we can see the power of God having chained, taken out their heart of stone and given them a heart of flesh, having caused them to now be a new person, a new creation in Christ. And that's what he's claiming here. This is 1 Corinthians 2, I was reading 1 through 5. He's saying, we didn't do this to please men. We didn't do this with a deceitful lying tongue. Remember, a lying tongue hates its victim and a flattering mouth works ruins. Proverbs 4:28. He wasn't flattering them. It's not flattering to say, you're a sinner, you deserve to go to hell, or you'll be tormented for all eternity, you need to repent. That is the opposite of flattery. 
But that's part of the gospel. He's saying, we did not flatter. Because if you flatter, oh, you're a good person. It's not going to work. They're not going to be able to be saved. Now, if you really want to know what it means by flattering lips in regards to shepherds, all you have to do is go to the bookstore and go to the self-help section. What does it have to say? Oh, you're a great person. You're very smart. You're powerful. You're wise. It is all within you to accomplish great things. And you just need me to stroke your ego, inflame your passions, and unlock your true potential. Blah, blah, blah. People love it. People spend a lot of money on that. They think, oh, if, you know, if I, I follow this teacher's teachings in this book that I got, I can unlock my true potential. I can be a great person myself. And so many followed them. But is it true? Or is scripture true? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wick, sick. Sick there meaning incurable. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17.9 You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1 Speaking of the Gentiles, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God due to the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Ephesians 4.18 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Is that the truth? Are we lost until God regenerates our heart? Are we ignorant and incapable of understanding the truth? Have we suppressed the truth with our unrighteousness that we even know? Is that the reality until God changes our heart? He said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh, put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. That is the message Paul preached, and that is not flattering. You are incapable. You're dead in sin. You're in rebellion against God. You will not listen to God. You cannot please God. You cannot understand what he says because of the wickedness of your heart. He says, we did not speak flattery. But these men flatter to line their pockets and puff up their egos. All true shepherds rather speak the truth in love that we may grow up in every way unto him who is head and to Christ. Ephesians 4.15 Being mindful of that truth that God is a witness to what we say and what we do and how we do it. Paul was careful in what he did. His life, his ministry, everything was God-centered and desired to be pleasing to God because God was his witness and he knew it. He understood that. He goes on in verses 6 through 8, talking about where the approval comes from. They sought God's approval and ministered selflessly for the people with genuine desire for them. What was the motivation of Paul? What was the motivation of the true shepherds of God? I think in this, verse 6 and 7, 
are set in opposition to each other. Now, most of the commentators treat them separately, but I think it's important to keep them close together. In verse 6, he's saying they did not seek glory from people. The word glory there is doxa, which is where we get the word doxology. We all know the doxology, a hymn of praise to God. Uh, the idea it carries is the, the splendor, the magnificence, the excellence, even the preeminence of the person who's being glorified. So he's saying, really, we didn't seek that kind of preeminence amongst you. I think that's his purpose in this statement. You remember the apostles? Two of them had their mom go to Jesus, tried to secure the place at his right hand and left hand. What does Jesus, well, the ten hear about it and they're indignant with those two. Jesus says to them, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. The great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must become your servant. Whoever would be first amongst you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He's saying, we were not like Diotrephes. We just did him a couple of weeks ago. John said, I have written to the church, something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, will not acknowledge our authority. He sought preeminence. You can't have preeminence in your church if people are saying, but that's the Apostle John, the one that Jesus loved, the one who laid his head back on Christ's chest during the final Passover meal. Diotrephes didn't like that. He wanted to be first. He wanted preeminence. John says, so when I come, I'll bring up what he was doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. Not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and stops those who want to welcome them and puts them out of the church. That was 3 John verses 9 and 10. That's an example of lording over the people and seeking preeminence. The kind of example we should not follow. Peter says of the elders, they must not be domineering over those in your charge, but as examples to the flock. Paul said, that's 1 Peter 5.3. Paul said, we reclaim not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as servants for Christ's sake. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. Men love preeminence. The Jews got in trouble for that all the time. They wanted to, you know, the chief place in the synagogue, the, the seats facing the congregation so the congregation could see their importance, that they were up front. They wanted the chief seats at, the, at a feast to show their greatness. Jesus did not care for that. And Paul did not care for that. You want to be the greatest? You want to be first? Be slave of all the people. It should put a crimp in people's desire for preeminence. But throughout church history, men have always desired preeminence. And whenever they get there, what happens? They become the head of their church, not Christ. The church deviates from Christ. Disaster strikes, the church falls, church, the denomination, whatever. 
Uh, we've seen it over and over and over again. Once men start seeking preeminence, once they seek to be Lord, once they seek to be head, they usurp the place of Christ and destroy the work. And it's no longer the work of God, but their own. That's why in verse 6 he says, we did not seek glory from people. He said, we could have made demands as apostles. You know, he could have demanded to be first. I am the apostle to the Gentiles. Stop what you're doing, pay attention, and obey. But he didn't. He didn't make use of that because he was being the example, following the example of Christ and the words of Christ that he should be servant of all. Verse 7, he says, We were gentle among you like a nursing mother caring for her own children. We know how this works, right? Nursing mothers are full of hormones, make them wacky. One of the things they want to do is take care of their baby. And they take care of them very gently and very carefully, seeing to all their needs. That's well how it should be. But we also know what happens, right? Babies get colicky, they don't burp, they don't go to sleep, they cry for hours. After six or seven days without rest, you become slightly insane. You pick the baby up like, be quiet, go to sleep. And we have what's called shaken baby syndrome. It's a real medical term. Babies can suffer death and permanent brain damage because the parent gets so frustrated they shake them trying to make them stop crying. He is saying we're gentle like a nursing mother, like one should be. No shaken baby syndrome here. But unfortunately, church leaders sometimes do that to their flock, to their sheep. It can be very hard on church leaders uh, many fierce opponents battling to overthrow the word of God, the kingdom of God. They have their false teachings. They tickle the ears. People would much rather listen to the gracious words that come out of the ear tickler's mouth than to you reading the word of God, let alone preaching on it. Because it will stumble them and they will see their sin and they will be struggling about that. And that makes some men turn cold. You know, it's hard teaching against wicked, ignorant sinners, their maliciousness. These people are looking to hurt God. They hurt the church. And the fight against them becomes so bad and so vicious that our love can grow cold. Jesus warned us. Because of the increase in lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. Matthew 24, 12 and 13. Paul explains this to Timothy this way. He said, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured to do his will. That's what a minister who's acting like a nursing mother will do, gently, with patience, with the desire to see them escape from Satan, not simply the desire to see 
and brought into submission to the leader, not simply the desire to punish them for rebelling against the leader. We follow Christ's example. Remember Christ's call to his sheep, Come to me all who are labor, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew eleven, twenty eight through thirty. He cared gently for his sheep. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. Paul the Apostle may have been firm and unyielding before heretics and false prophets and godless opponents who set themselves up against Christ, but he is a man who truly loved the sheep that God had entrusted to him. He treated them like a nursing mother treated a newborn child. And we see that in his writings over and over again. He didn't want them to be happy in their own sin. He wanted to present them as a pure virgin to Christ, 2 Corinthians 11.2. Paul and his group were motivated by their love for God's sheep, by their genuine affection for the brothers and for the believers. He writes this way through all of his letters, and we see that, and we could call him the apostle of love for God's sheep. Paul sometimes gets called harsh, but... His harshness is in love, wanting to protect and save his, the sheep of God and to do the ministry that God has given him. You remember what Paul said to husbands? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I think Paul loved the church as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless, Ephesians 2, 25 and 27. Paul loved the church with true love, wanting to see the people draw near to God, caring for them as tenderly as a nursing mother, fighting for them as fiercely as anybody could. Because of his love. I want to leave you with this final thought because we're getting a little late. I will feed them with good pasture. This is the Lord speaking to Ezekiel. On the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture. They shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. The fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. Ezekiel 34, 14 through 16. Note the work that Paul did is the work that Joyce says that he will do. Bring back, seek the lost, bring back the strayed, bind up the injured, strengthen the weak. And what do we do in the Christian church? Battle the opponent, denounce the weak, crush them, grind them to goo. Uh, That's not the way Christ wants it to be. And I think Paul is telling them, this is the ministry that we had amongst you. We were like Christ, gentle, 
and kind in caring for their souls. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul, though he was persecuted, though he was beaten, tortured, though the Jews opposed him fiercely and sought his death for bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, though the Gentiles opposed him fiercely and sought his death for turning people from their pagan gods and their idols, that he never lost his love for the sheep. We see, Lord, that he treated them as a mother treats her newborn child. We pray, Lord, that we would learn from that, to love each other, to care for each other, to seek to help and encourage and lift up each other as a newborn child is lifted up by his nursing mother. Pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.